We're going to jump into Psalm chapter 25. We're in a new series together called Revive. And uh, if, if I'm just being frank up front while we're in this series together, we're at a time of year here in Utah where uh, you just get sick of winter and you get a little rambunctious. And sometimes this time of year can be a little depressing. It's like, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I love the snow. And there are just some years that come and then the snow drops. And after one time, I'm like, okay, we're good. We're spring, right? It's like, I, uh, I like being outside too. And uh, as much as uh, if I could just get the snow and let it be like, I don't know, 70 outside, that would be the perfect world for me. But, but uh, you, you get this time of year. And it, sometimes it can get you in a, in a bad place or maybe even over the holidays and, and, and you go through the time, that time of year and you've just gone through a rough patch and holidays have this time of reminding us of loss a lot of times. And, and how do you respond in those moments? You know, when you think about uh, God's word, God's word certainly gives us this declaration of truth of who God is and even who we are in light of him. Um, but you know, when it comes to the truth, there's, there's oftentimes what we know to be true and then there's the way that we feel, right? Like there's the truth that God proclaims, but then you, you gotta, you're left with the question, okay, but what does that mean with the world in which I live in? And, and trying to figure out how to bridge that gap between what God says and, and how you feel. Now, now certainly God says, God gives us truth. Uh, your mind, God gave you a mind and God wants you to think in truth in terms of, of truth. But God is more than an intellectual inter, uh, exercise for us. Like uh, God wants to transform our lives. And so it's important for us to understand not just the truth that God declares, but, but the way that impacts us with, with where we are. And, and the book that I think does this beautifully in helping us intersect where we are in light of who God is, is the book of Psalms. Uh, the uniqueness of the book of Psalms is that Psalms, while all the other books declared us who God is and, and what we need to know about God, the book of Psalms is more man's response back to the Lord. All the other books are given this, this, either this narrative or this declarative of, of God's identity. Well, the book of Psalms are, is man's response in light of the beauty of who God is. It, it's that way of intersecting the, the truth of God with where we are in this world. And when you read the book of Psalms, what you find is Psalms is made up of 150 songs that respond in worship to life circumstances. And there's categorically different psalms written. There, there's psalms of praise, which we saw last week. Uh, we, we looked at Psalm 33, and in verse 1, it tells us to sing for joy and what it means for us uh, to have joy in the Lord and how to find our joy. And joy is bigger than just circumstance because circumstance is fleeting, but God wants us to experience joy in Him. So there's the, the Psalms of praise, there's Psalms of, of, of royalty, there's Psalms of trust, there's Psalms of Him, there's Psalms of wisdom, there's Psalms that are given for special circumstances, which Israel would uh, use to celebrate during things like Passover, they would sing the Hallel which is Psalm 113 to 118 uh, together. Jesus sang that Psalm on the night of his, those Psalms on the night of his betrayal. Uh, when you think about these Psalms categorically, the most popular are the Psalms of praise. But second to that is this category of Psalms called Psalms of lament. And, and this week we're going to look at the second most popular category of songs, uh, the Psalms of lament. A lament expresses deep sorrow in troubling circumstances. Psalm 25 is a lament teaching us how to worship in hardship. What this psalm does is it pictures life as a journey and it recognizes in that journey, really, we're not intended to make it alone. 
And so you'll see if you go through this psalm that the, the way the author expresses this, which I think is David going through some hardship, that he, he refers to the way of God four times in verse 4, 8, 9, 12, the, the path of God in, in verse 10, or crying out to God for wisdom in verse 4 and 5, recognizing that in this circumstance he finds himself, which is difficult, what he's seeking on this journey is the wisdom of God following after the path of God or the way of God, his response in worship. And his reasoning behind this, you see peppered throughout this psalm that surrounded around him are his enemies, verse 2, people that hate him, verse 19, uh, traps they've set before him, verse 15, and and their desire for his failure and shame, verse 2, verse 3, verse 30. When you get to verse 16 of the psalm, which is where I'm going to pick up, he, he finally gives us this statement in light of his circumstance of his state of being. In all of this, this is where he finds himself, this place of honesty before the Lord. And what he says in in verse 16, he says, turn to me and be gracious to me. This is his prayer before the Lord. And he says it like this, for I am lonely and afflicted. This idea of being lonely is this place of deserted or abandoned. Afflicted is not having the sustenance that he needs in order to sustain life. When you read a passage like this or a verse like this, when someone just simply exposes their heart to where they are, um, I think a, a piece of us in our human nature, we tend to connect with things like this because we've been there, right? We know what this is like. Turn to me and be gracious. You're just looking for the the gracious hand of God because in the midst of the circumstance you find yourself abandoned, lonely, destitute. How do you move forward? How do you move forward when you feel like verse 16? What do you do when you feel hurt and abandoned? And I think our, our tendency as as human beings, there are two pitfalls that I think that we want to avoid. I'll talk a little bit about that. And, and there is a tendency in the way that we often react in circumstances like this that aren't always healthy. And we're going to uh, talk some about this. But I, I really want to start with what the psalmist does because what the psalmist does is healthy. And I want you to know when we read these first seven verses, these are not, this is not profound. This should not shock you. I mean, this is the basics of how we react in moments like this or how we should respond in moments like this. And it's not to say we don't know the basics, but before you get anywhere for which God calls you to, before we can really understand why and all of things, we need to start with what, what we know to be true. And so the psalmist starts out first seven verses. I'm, I'm going to just read it to you, but I'm just going to let you know, Here, here's what he does he has faith he he makes seeking after god the priority in his circumstance and that's what he expresses in these first seven verses he says to you O lord i lift my soul oh my god in you i trust do not let me be ashamed do not let my enemies exult over me indeed none of those who wait for you will be ashamed those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed make me know your ways O lord teach me your paths lead me in your truths and teach me 
For you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your loving kindness. See, while in verse 16 the psalmist expresses his state of being, he also acknowledges throughout this psalm, and especially here in the beginning, where he is seeking in his faith in these moments. And he's putting that faith, and you could put it in anything, but he's, he's putting that faith in the Lord. And this psalm is peppered through this expression, right? So state of being, he says, I am alone, I am destitute. But he also says, and I here, verse 1, lift my soul to you. I, verse 2, trust. This goes on throughout the psalm. Verse 5, he waits for the Lord. Verse 15, my eyes continually on the Lord. Verse 20, I take refuge. Verse 21, I wait. His state of faith is in the Lord. Now one of the things that I appreciate about this psalm and its candidness is that he acknowledges to the Lord the hardship that he faces. He's not immune to this. This is not about avoiding hardship. When you think about being alone, it's, this is not to say, and, you're, and if you just follow what the psalm says, you'll never feel that way again. That's not what this psalm's about. But this psalm is here to acknowledge that, yes, we experience this in our lives, but there's a way that the Lord strengthens us in those circumstances to find the goodness of who he is. When David lost everything in his kingdom, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6 says this, that he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I think it's godly to tell, tell God about the hardship you face. It's not a faithless act. In fact, I think it's a very faithful act because it's acknowledging the one who supplies in that circumstance is the Lord. And so just as, uh, as David seeks the, the goodness of God in the midst of the circumstance, just as David in 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 encouraged himself in the Lord his God, uh, it's saying to us when you don't know what to do with your outlook, Start with your uplook. God, here's where I'm at. God, here's what I know about you. God, lead me in your way in this. Where you go when you feel abandoned is an indicator of what you truly believe and trust in. And the ironic thing with some people is when others abandon us, sometimes our tendency, ironically, is to abandon the Lord. We face hardship, run away. Or maybe, maybe going to the Lord isn't even the first thing that we think about. Maybe we run to, to other people for comfort or, or possessions or, or places. But what this psalmist is acknowledging for us, that, that, that place of beginning, that ground zero in this hardship, feeling alone, is, is to start with God. And he's saying, indeed, he believes the Lord to be the answer. Let me ask it to us like this. If you were to wake up tomorrow and you were the only one that was following after Jesus, would you still follow after Jesus? No doubt in the life of the psalmist, he's probably not the only one following after Jesus, but he likely feels that way because of the circumstances he's in. But if you were to stop following Jesus just because other people aren't following after the Lord, the question you would ask is, were you ever really following God to begin with? Why are you following him? 
Is it out of convenience or is it because of who he is? As you think about this, the, the basis that the psalmist goes through is this, this thought of just simply faith, seeking God in the circumstances where it starts. And, and no doubt, elementary in its explanation, we should all know that, right? Like, I, I'm a pastor. What am I going to say here? Trust God. Right? Trust God. But what we need to answer now is just why? Why? Why do we do that? Like, I, I'm glad that we say that. We need to know that. God is sufficient for that. But let, let's talk a little bit deeper about why that is. And, and so the psalmist continues to develop this thought in verse 8. Good and upright right is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies for your namesake. O Lord, pardon my iniquity for it is great. Who is man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the, in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he will make, he will make them know his covenant. The psalmist in this passage doesn't just talk about the need for faith in those adverse circumstances. I know when you go through hardship, when people abandon you, there's this place that wells up within us that wants to react to that circumstance that isn't always godly, right? And so, so he talks about the, the need for faith, but then within the context of faith, he talks about this particular posture that we carry in our faith. And it's highlighted for us in, in verse 12 and verse 14. He, he's going to highlight a little f- further in verse 21, but verse 12, 14, and then I'm going to look back in verse 9 in just a moment. But when you look in verse 12 and 14, he carries the similar thread of thought. He says, uh, who is the man who fears the Lord? And it says in that fear that God will instruct him in the way he should choose. In verse 14, this, the same thing. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. So he's not just saying, okay, uh, you need to have faith. But the question is, uh, how do I know that my faith is genuine, genuine in, in that circumstance? And what he's saying is, here's, here's how you know the expression of your faith is genuine in the hardship. It's based on the posture of your faith as you're going through that circumstance. And so what posture does he talk about here? It's not just to simply say in an intellectual way, I have faith. But it's the expression of a faith through a heart that's been transformed in the Lord, right? This reverence for who God is. The surrendering to him in the midst of the circumstance, the fear of the Lord. Now in verse 14, he says something that's a little strange maybe to us. He talks about this, the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Uh, This idea of of secret is not saying, look, if you fear God, if you fear God enough, he's going to tell you something he doesn't tell anyone else. All right. Like we're not, we're not going like voodoo magic here. That's not, that's not what the intention of this verse is saying. What another way you could translate it is sort of this, this idea of friendship counsel. Meaning if you want God to direct your life, there are some that God doesn't speak in their life the way they intends to with other people because they're just not close to him in proximity. The more intimate the relationship, the more you know about the other person, right? The more your heart shares their heart. And, and what God is saying is here, you want me to guide you? You want me to direct you? What type of reverence do you have for me in this circumstance? Because I know how it goes with us as people when we face hardship and especially when someone comes against us like Psalm 25 is saying, because welling up within us is going to say, what'd you say? <laughs> right? I know you didn't talk about me like that, right? 
And so what God's question is, is where am I in relation to that circumstance? How well do I have your ear to whisper my counsel into you? It's not as if it's hidden from us. It's not as if you're getting this special secret no one else has access to. It's more of whether or not you're willing to listen to what God wants to say in your life in those moments. And we think about this faith posture. I know oftentimes there are verses that that talk about the fear of the Lord. But one of the examples I think he also uses in connection to this this thought of fearing God is in verse 9. And what he says to us is God leads the humble in justice. And he teaches the humble his way. Some translations um, don't just use the word humble. They, they, they'll translate it as this thought of meekness. And what he's saying to us is the posture of your character will demonstrate if you're really walking with God, especially in hardship. Do you have faith? How do you know? Well, what's the posture of your character in the circumstance? Now, when we come to the idea of humility or meekness, I think it's important for us to know that, that meekness is not weakness. Don't, don't mistake it that way. Meekness is not weakness, but rather it's, it's power and confidence under control. Meekness carries this idea of, of being securely rooted in the identity that God gives you. A genuine, genuinely humble person usually tends to have two things working for them if that humility is rooted in God. They have, they have a correct perspective of who they are apart from Christ, and they have this correct perspective of who they are because of Christ. Does that make sense? Meaning, when someone maligns you, you don't feel the need to fight for you because Jesus has already done that and he's won. You have an identity, and it's not because of what you've given to yourself. It's because of what Christ has given to you. And so with that confidence of who you are in Jesus, you don't feel this need to react to the circumstances around you, but rather, knowing that God is in control, you walk with this humility before him because God's got this. And so in verse 10, he says, In light of that, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So it's a reminder to us in the place of God. When we walk before him with this posture of faith expressed in meekness, that we can rest in the, verse 10, in this confidence that we can be trusted in the guidance of God in our lives. The psalmist is saying, is when you face, verse 16, this abandonment, in your life, this destitution of the way it makes you feel, the most important thing you can do is trust God with a spirit of meekness. How we react in this moment is important because it's this, this thought of walking in faith and meekness is counterintuitive to the typical way our flesh often wants to act in those moments. But here's what the psalmist is doing. He's answering an important faith question that we all face in those types of hardships. Do I believe God is big enough to handle the battle? So oftentimes in our lives, what we we want to do, our tendency when we face that, that type of hardship and we lack faith, is rather than trusting God, we want to rip it out of his hands and take control of the moment. 
you trust God's big enough to handle the battle? When we experience Psalm 25, verse 16, this abandonment, our sinful nature rages within us. And rather than faith mode in our lives, I think we go through two other expressions that aren't necessarily godly. And I think it's, it's not faith mode, but it's, it's fight mode or it's flight mode. Now, I want you to know in, in saying that, um, I, I, I don't want to come heavy on this or, 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 or be judgmental about this because I, I think a lot of times our reaction is based out of fear of things that we're going to lose, of the way that someone made us feel, the diminishing of something that we found important, so out of fear we might react. But, but rather than faith, I think our human tendency is to, to do one of two things. We go in fight or, or flight. And when we talk about in terms of fight mode, what I mean is we, we, we go in fight mode from the Lord. We hate what happens to us, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like If sinful things happen to you, it's, it's okay to be angry at sin, Right? But what happens when we start hating, hating the things that happen to us, we, we, we make ourselves responsible to make everything and everyone change. I don't like what you did. I don't like what happened. And so we go into this fight mode, right, to, to make it be different. I'm going to make the circumstance different. I'm going to make the person different. And, and, and just like they threw mud at you, you start throwing mud back. And what happens? You get muddy too. We're no better off than the people that made us feel the way that we did. Now, let me just clarify this and say, I don't think it's wrong to approach sin. I don't think it's wrong to approach conflict. I I don't even think when the Bible talks about forgiveness, what it means is you just need to sweep everything under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. I think there's a a place and a time that, that when things happen and we know it's not right, that in love we can approach the other person. But here's the reality. You can't change their mind. You can't change their mind. And sometimes when you know you can't change their mind, the temptation is try to make them change their mind, right? And that's when we go into fight mode. You take things in your hands and you believe it's your job to change hearts. And what we're confessing in those moments is that we don't think God is big enough to handle it. Let me just encourage you, even knowing that, you know, Bible calls us to seek restoration with people and to be forgiving. If a toxic person maligns you, if a toxic person abandons you, um, it's not saying you have to go back and try to be best friends with them, right? Um, What the Bible encourages us to, to think about, and I think what this psalmist is doing is to leave space for the Lord to do his job. It's not your job to change hearts. It's God's job. It's our job to trust him. And in Romans chapter 12, the, the Bible gives us this, this passage of scripture, I think, that, that kind of runs along with what Psalm 25 is saying. It, it says this to us. If possible, so far as it depends on you, seek peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. So one of the things he's acknowledging here is that it's not going to be possible to be at peace with all men because, well, all men also have to make up their minds. <laughs> but... But before the Lord, what do you display? 
And when, the, when, when Romans is saying this in chapter 12, it's on the backbone of hardship and persecution, people that are persecuting God's people. And, and Paul's response is, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning as far as your responsibility goes, because you can't change someone else's heart, seek peace with all men, be at peace with them. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but look at this. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now let me just tell you this. I know not all circumstances require vengeance. (laughs) And I know that Paul knows that in writing this letter to us, right? I'm not telling you, like, when you have something bad to happen to you, that what you really need is just wish the ill will towards everyone. I don't think that's what this is saying at all. I think Christians are being harshly persecuted in this, and God wants the believers to know he's got this, but he doesn't want them to stand in the way of what he has in his control. He wants them, rather than to take his job, to leave that job up to him. And so what is their responsibility? Be at peace. Be at peace and leave room for God to do what God's going to do. It's not saying necessarily that God is even saying the solution is going to be vengeance, but that if the solution needs to be vengeance, God is more than capable of carrying it out. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. But this is what he says for us to do. But if your enemy is hungry, get this, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. And so doing you reap uh, you heap burning coals on his head. Can I tell you, this is a very gospel response, and here, here's how. Um, we were all enemies of God at one point, hostile to his kingdom, and Jesus never stopped loving you, and that love changed you, right? When I was in college, I remember I got to this verse in Bible college, and, and the professor was explaining us the second half of this verse, because the second half of this verse has always confused me. He says, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What is that? Like, we're setting people on fire. <laughs> this does not feel very Christian to me. What is this talking about? Like, some people will see this and be like, you're going to, it'll burn them. They just won't like it, right? <laughs> it's like, well, I'm not doing nice things just to really put a dig into someone. That's not my point. That's not, that's not what God calls us to do. This cannot be what this verse is saying. Do something nice so that way you hurt them, right? Like, I don't think that's what this verse is saying at all. I remember when the professor explained this to us, and I don't, I don't think he did a very good job either, but he said this. Well, you got to remember in, in Paul's day, and even before this, because this is a quote from the Old Testament, I think from the book of Proverbs, he's saying, you got to remember everyone, their lives were sustained by fire, right? And if you're in your home and you have to cook, you have to build a fire. And sometimes that takes forever. And if your fire goes out, what do you do? Well, you've got to go to your neighbor's house and you take a bowl and they put the coal in the bowl. And then you walk away to your house. You carry it on your head. You walk away to your house, to your fire, and you put it in. And then that was his explanation. I'm like, what is, yeah, but who cares? Like, what does that mean? I'm glad, he's like, well, you, you just do another nice deed, right? You give him food, you give him a drink, and you give him fire. What a nice person you are. But here's, here's what I think this verse is actually saying. Um, if you've got a jar of coals on your head, and you don't do something with it soon, it's going to burn you, right? It, it forces you to have to respond to it. As human beings, we don't like to leave things unsettled. Uh, we, we need to think through how to categorize things so we can move past it or, or understand what it is, right? We do this all the time. We label things, categorize things, and it helps us to process it from our worldview. Now, granted, sometimes our worldview could be crazy, right? But we all process it through our own worldview, whether you might think you're normal or not. And, and what he's saying in this passage is, look, when your enemy who is mean to you sees you not respond that way, 
but rather you still genuinely care about him. Even though you may not agree with the circumstance, even though it doesn't mean you have to be best friends, when you choose not to go there, what you inevitably do is you heap this coal on their head. And what he or she is going to have to do is figure out how to respond to that. Now, their, their desire of categorizing how you reacted may not be a healthy response, but if you do it long enough, eventually they're going to be like, I think their love is genuine. Why? Why would they love me, right? They've got to do something with it. And that's what the psalmist says. Do not be overcome with evil, or the psalmist, the Romans, I should say, but overcome evil with good. And so we go into fight mode, right? Which the Bible's encouragement is leave room for the Lord. Don't, don't take his place. Or we go, into, we go into flight mode. When you think about this idea of flight mode, it's a little bit trickier in its appearance because it, it can give the perception of humility, but completely lack faith. When we go into this flight mode, we, we run and hide from the Lord saying we don't believe God's big enough to work it out. And what that looks like is you never trust again. You never build relationship again. You don't want to be in in, in a community again, right? You're this isolated Christian. And, And flight mode is the other side of the coin of fight mode, right? I think both of them can be done out of fear, trying to grab back or not wanting to be hurt anymore. But you think about what that path leads to. You go into this flight mode, and I understand you go through hardship. There is this period of time where we need to recover from the circumstances that we've experienced. But what happens if you stay there is you rob yourself from allowing the Lord to work through you in community. And you rob the community of seeing Christ work in you. And you're important to the Lord and to the body. You know, I think when we go into hiding mode, we might think, good, nothing bad can happen again. But, you know, either way, you go into flight mode or or, or fight mode, I think Satan wins. You go into fight mode, he certainly wins because he brings disunity. You go into flight mode, he definitely wins because he's setting you on the sidelines from doing anything that God's called you to do. Either way, he wins. But then there is this other place through which we walk, which is faith in the Lord. And this is what the psalmist says in, in verse 25, verse 15. He says this, My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. What's he saying here? He's saying to us in this very beginning, the very first part of this verse, faith in meekness, right? Faith in meekness, right? My eyes continually towards the Lord. And then he says this, he's going to pluck my feet out of the net. Now, how in the world, how in the world does the psalmist know this? What makes him so confident that God will do this? And the answer is, God's already got the victory. Do you realize that today? And everything that you're going through in this world and any hardship you ever face, Jesus has already won. You've already got the victory. Christ has won over it all. We're just waiting to see how it all plays out. Jesus has won. 
The reason this psalmist confidently says this is he's saying, look, I'm going to walk with God in this. Faith in meekness says, in Jesus, I already have the victory. But I'm choosing in this moment to trust in him to see how he's going to work it all out. Now, it may not be according to the way that you want it. But I can guarantee that what God wants for you is far better than what you could ever want for yourself. And so what the psalmist is bringing us to is this place of recognizing, do you believe God is big enough to handle it? And if God already has the victory, he's got you in this place to see how the Lord is going to work it out. So give God the space to do what God is called to do. And you trust in him in these moments. Can I, um, you think about these, this, this last half of this verse. I, I just want to give us a couple of massive gospel-centric points uh, as it reflects on this psalm. Now, when you read these last parts, this last half of the psalm, or the last few verses of the psalm, verse 16, it says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. What's this psalmist saying? He's saying the reason we want to do verse 21 is because of verse 22. So the reason we do verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. See what the psalmist is saying? He's going back to this idea of in faith. How do you know you're truly expressing faith? Well, it's demonstrated in the integrity of your character. Meekness. Humility. He's saying, okay, here's how I'm going to walk in this circumstance. I'm going to let integrity and uprightness be what I stand for because this is the place for which permits or allows God to move in my circumstance so I'm not taking his place, but the goodness of God can be made known. His light. So when you act like the world in response to the world, where is God's good hand in that? But when you love in the midst of hate, the beauty of God is made known. Make it hard for people to hate you, right? What he's saying in verse 21 is don't let someone else dictate who God calls you to be. So let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And, and, and this is the reason why we do verse 21 is because of, of verse 22. And this is where it gets gospel centric for us. He says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Um. Now, this is a I died a self moment, but let me say the most important thing in our lives isn't that God does what we want in a situation. I know that's where we want to go, right? They hurt me, God get them. And we want everyone else to have justice, and we want to have grace, right? The most important thing that can happen in our lives isn't that God does what we want in a situation. The most important thing that can happen is that God does what he wants in a situation, which is the work of the gospel. And when you get to verse 22, you see this idea of redemption, this idea of restoring. If we carry our agenda, we stand in the way of what God's agenda is rather than work with him. 
But if we trust in the victory of the Lord, it's he that brings what the moment needs. It is God who can heal things that we can't see how to heal. And it's God who brings his perfect justice in things where we can't see how to bring his perfect justice. When you think about the idea of the gospel and the thought of redemption, redemption is more than just justice. And it's more than grace. It's this perfect harmony of both. Because there are some situations in our lives that we look at and we think, I I don't see how God can turn this into positive in his grace. I don't see how God can deliver his justice in these moments to make it what it needs to be. What he's saying in the idea of his redemption is God does both perfectly and he's the one that can respond to the situation better than any of us can imagine. God can bring healing far and above our expectation. And God can bring his justice in a way that brings that healing as well. And when we walk that path with the Lord, we may not get victory the way that we think it's best, but we'll get victory the way that God sees best and what God sees is far better than what man's, man can ever see in his own strength. And so what he's saying in this passage for us is to let, let integrity and uprightness be what leads us. And remember this whole thought of this psalm really roots its identity in how the psalmist expresses himself in verse verse 16. Be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. There are times in our lives where no doubt we can feel this way, right? We can feel lonely. But I want to encourage you as we reflect on the gospel to to never let the enemy allow you to believe that you're truly alone. See, while the psalmist acknowledges in this passage that he does feel this way, I, I want to remind us that Jesus was the only one who was absolutely abandoned. And the reason that he was abandoned was so that you would never have to be. If you remember on the cross, You know, when you go through these hard circumstances in life, sometimes you feel this disconnect to God, but it doesn't mean he's not there. And in Mark chapter 15, what Jesus said as he hung on the cross, he he, he cried out to God and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians for centuries have marveled at this expression that the father would completely separate himself from the son. He turns his back on the son. The triunity of God has lived in perfect community throughout all of history, throughout all of time, eternally. Yet in these moments, somehow, father and son separated. Jesus is abandoned. And I describe this, this is literally hell on earth. Jesus went through hell. When you think about heaven and hell, the thing that makes heaven, heaven isn't a location. The thing that makes hell, hell isn't about location. It's about proximity in connection to God and relationship. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus' presence. His gracious presence forever. Wherever he is, that's heaven. What makes hell hell is away from his gracious presence forever. And Jesus, in experiencing this separation from the Father, that's hell on earth. And why was he abandoned? So that you would never have to be. That's why when you read scripture, the Bible says over 360 times, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus went through this so that you would never have to go through this. God is always with you. You're never alone. What the psalmist is acknowledging is God is for you. 
Give him the rightful place to work it out. Don't fight, don't hide, but have faith in meekness and recognize in Jesus you've already got the victory, but you want to see how the hand of God works it out. And you know what this this passage is saying to us in connection to Psalm 25, and as we look at this in Mark 15, that God is about community. Then we look at this idea of being alone. The reason our soul is gripped by this, one, because we've been here and we don't like it, uh, but two, we know that in being created in God, the reason God created us was for community. Triunity, the trinity of God has existed eternally in community and God making us in his image, he designs us for community. So let me just say this, as a gospel-centric people moving in Christ, I know sometimes when we do things for God, we like to have titles or positions as if that makes it matter, but can I, can I just dub us all in a title or a position this morning you are a kingdom community builder here's your title everyone here this morning because of the gospel because of what jesus does because god creates us for community because jesus reconciles us in the gospel and his hand is about redemption what we should be about as his people is a people of community we should be seeking out people that desire to belong and calling people into relationship with christ because that's where we're ultimately created to belong and so with that comes responsibility. It's not about just putting a butt in a chair. We don't measure the success of our church by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. And what that means is when we go out from this world because of what God has done for us and the victory that we already have in him, we have a platform to call people into relationship with him. Which means the people around you matter. And so when you think in terms of title, here's what you are. You're a kingdom community builder for the sake of Christ. Because that demonstrates what the gospel is. God wants people to belong. And God wants people to belong to him. Is he able? Faith and meekness is a demonstration that the declaration of your life is a yes. And the victory that you have, you have the front row seat to watch how Jesus plays it out. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.